Well, the evidence of a creator, a heavenly father, is everywhere. It's all around us. And, and for those who are willing to see it for what it is, I think it's undeniable that there is a God from the mountains that tower into the skies uh, to the fathomless depths of the great oceans and all they contain from the rhythms of nature working in harmony to sustain life on this planet to the intricacies of the human body to the heart of an earthly father for his children the grandeur and wonder of God is undeniably evident everywhere we turn that the fingerprint of a creator is all over the natural world and all of that evidence exists to testify to all of mankind that there is indeed a God a father who's supreme divine and sovereign over all one who actually transcends the natural world and that he uh, which he created and loves Romans 1 18 through 22 the apostle Paul writes the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. I'd say that's just as accurate a description of many people today as it was then. And yet we have available to us throughout the world all of this evidence to support our truth claims about the one true God, our Father in heaven. And so in the interest of using that evidence to convince unbelievers that there is in fact a God, that all of this order and meaning in the natural world didn't occur by some random purposeless accident, rather it was intended calculated, deliberately created by an intelligent and all-powerful being, right? Believers have therefore over the past couple of centuries at least developed these convincing arguments to that end because we want others, of course, to recognize and acknowledge that God exists with the hope that once we accomplish that, once we're able to persuade an unbeliever that there is in fact a God, then maybe from there we can lead them to faith in Jesus Christ, the very embodiment of that one true God. And so we, we learn Sometimes we even rehearse and practice these arguments concerning the evidence of a creator, which is actually a, a religious discipline. It's called apologetics. And there's some famous apologists who are skilled in making apologetic arguments. People like C.S. Lewis, Os Guinness, William Lane Craig, Lee Strobel. There are many others who are masters of the discipline of Christian apologetics. And yet uh, we should be grateful for these men and women who practice and teach apologetics so skillfully because they are, in fact, gifts uh, to the body of Christ. However, when we use apologetics as our first approach to unbelievers, I think sometimes we run the risk of winning arguments for Christ rather than winning hearts for Christ. And the problem with that is we're not called to just win arguments for Him. We're called to win hearts for Him. And for what it's worth, I think, I think most apologists in modern Christianity would agree with that statement. So although there is certainly a place for apologetics in evangelism, I don't think it's always the best approach as our first approach because I think it is much more effective before we try and prove to someone that God exists to first show them what God is like. 
And so just as the existence of God is on display in creation, the character of God is on display in his people, or at least it should be. And where that should be evident more than anywhere else is in our fathers. Because listen, men, we can teach our children all about God, what his word says, who he is, what he did for us. But if we don't actually show them what that looks like by reflecting his character in ours, our words will have little lasting impact in their lives. And of course, this applies to not only fathers and our children, but to all believers and all the people we have relationships with because it's far more powerful for us to show people what God is like than it is to tell them what he's like. Okay? It's easier, think of it this way, it's, it's easier to ignore what someone says than it is to ignore what someone does. And so when, when people experience the character of Christ in us, typically it generates a response one way or the other. People are either repelled by it or attracted to it, which, uh, by the way, is where, that's where telling them about God comes in. This is where apologetics often <laughs> comes in, because when an unbeliever has a meaningful encounter with a true believer, very often they will question why we are the way that we are. And the moment you tell them, well, it's because of the Spirit of Christ living inside of me that I'm the way that I am, people will respond to that because they've seen the evidence of it first in how you live your life. And sometimes, by the way, those responses are not what you're looking for. I've had people often say to me when I tell them that, well, that's great. I, I'm not sure I believe in, in a God or I just, I just can't buy the claims of the Bible or, you know what, religion is fine for some but not for me and, and on it goes, right? That's where apologetics can be so effective for those who believe that Christianity cannot be intelligently argued. From a, whether it's a scientific or historical or logical perspective, because often apologetic arguments open the door for having conversations with people who've just encountered the Spirit of God in us. Even if they don't realize it, they just know that something's different, and that's what happens when we're submitted to His Spirit within us. His character shines through us, and it is palpable. When you experience the character of God in other people, you can sense that something is different, which is why it is so critical that we learn to allow the character of God, the nature of God, which is so often counter to our own nature, to shine through us before other people because that's what captures the hearts and minds and imaginations of people. Not, uh, not really clever arguments, but real people who exude the real character of God in their lives every day. So, uh, look, we may be able to argue people under the table with our reasoned explanations and evidences of what we believe, but what good does it serve other than to stroke our e egos, to, to win arguments with unbelievers if they never actually experienced the character of Christ in us? And of course, all you have to do uh, is look at social media to get a face full of professing believers who are bent on winning arguments without any evidence whatsoever of even a shred of concern for the souls of those with whom they're arguing. And if there was ever a time when it was crucially important for Christians to radiate the character of Christ, I'm telling you that time is now because our culture seems to be more divided than ever. People need to see Jesus in us far more than they need to hear better arguments. And again, there's a place for reasoning and explaining and defending the faith. The Bible's clear on that. I'm simply saying before we give people arguments as evidence of what we believe, let's let them experience the evidence of what we believe by allowing the true character of Christ to shine through us. 
Because then our arguments will go much further when they're reflected in the way that we live and love and interact with other people. And in our story today, as we continue to work our way through the book of Esther, we find the character of God at work in the lives of and on behalf of His people as they are also confronted by an extremely sharply divided culture. And their response to God's working in their lives then is probably different than what we would condone today because of all of this occurred in the, the covenant uh, before the covenant was fulfilled in Christ. So this is a different time under a different covenant for God's people. But listen, his character, which is revealed in the story, is the same. Because as we saw last week, God never changes. So let's pick the story up where we left off last week. And we'll see what we can learn about the character of God. And just a bit of backstory, if in case you weren't here last Sunday. Haman is the king of Persia's number one official, his right-hand man. He, he was plotting to have Mordecai, who was Esther's adopted father and a lesser official in the royal court, he was plotting to have Mordecai killed for refusing to bow before him, right? because Haman was a descendant of the Amalekites, the ancient enemies of the Jews. And so just before Mordecai is to be executed in a stunning turn of events, God intervenes, and Mordecai is not only spared, but he was actually honored by the king, who was reminded that Mordecai had foiled an assassination plot against the king some five years earlier. But don't forget, still very much in effect at this point in the story was a royal decree devised by Haman and signed by the king, also stemming from Mordecai's stand against Haman, for all of the Jews everywhere to be completely annihilated. That hasn't changed. And so That still includes Mordecai and Esther, by the way, who are Jews. So Haman's ultimate wish for Mordecai and all of his people to be wiped off the face of the earth was still on schedule at this point. He would just have to wait a little little longer than planned to see Mordecai come to an end. Meanwhile, even as Haman was plotting against Mordecai and the Jews, Esther and Mordecai are plotting for Esther to convince the king to somehow reverse the fortunes of the Jewish people so they might live. It's an incredibly delicate position for Esther to be in because of the perfect storm of conditions involving, first of all, Persian law, which said that all decrees of the king, all edicts of the king were irrevocable. It couldn't be changed. And secondly, because of the recent closeness of Haman to the king and the recent distance of Esther from the king, right? They hadn't seen each other in over a month by the king's choice, which is probably an indicator that his feelings for her had begun to wane, as we saw last week. And, and then finally because of the king's own disposition and behavior, which was erratic at best, and it was downright psychotic when at his worst. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. So as we pick the story up here, Esther is now hosting her second royal feast for the king and Haman in as many days. She's very deliberately taking time to reestablish some rapport with the king because she hasn't seen him for a month before presenting this incredibly complicated and delicate request which the king has repeatedly been asking for already, right, from Esther. Like, what do you, why are we doing this? What do you want? He's getting ready to ask her again. So let's read it together. Esther chapter 7, we'll start with the first six verses. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I've found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we've been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. 
If we'd been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. So the king asked Esther a third time, Hey, what is it you want from me? And Esther, then after two days of feasting and drinking with the king, finally introduces her incredibly delicate and dangerous request for the king to turn against his closest advisor and confidant, Amen. But it's even more complicated than that because she not only has to accuse Haman, but she also has to do it without incriminating the king, knowing full well that he was not only complicit in condemning the Jews to certain death, albeit unwittingly, but he was also the one who authorized and signed and sent out the royal decree to carry out the genocide against the Jews. It's really hard to overstate the complexity and precarity of Esther's position here because in truth, the king is just as guilty as Haman. And if Esther is not careful, she could very well bring the king's wrath down upon herself as his propensity to deal harshly with people, even those closest to him, was already well documented, right? We know about the first queen, Vashti, who he banished from the royal court forever for refusing to come and perform for him and his drunken guests. And the 4th century B.C. historian Herodotus records an event involving a very wealthy man named Pythias of Lydia. The story is he was a descendant of Lydian royalty before the Persian conquest, and he contributed lavishly to King Ahasuerus toward the cost of the coming war with Greece. He also entertained the king very graciously on his way to the war as well. So these two are very close. In fact, the king is so pleased with Pythias and his friendship with him that he in return gives 7,000 gold derricks, uh, Herodotus says, or Persian coins, back to Pythias. So by all accounts, this is a great relationship between these two men. And so as the Persian army is marching off to war with Greece, Pythias asks King Ahasuerus to release Pythias's eldest son from the obligation of military service so that he could stay back and care for Pythias in his old age. Uh, of course, he's still going to send the rest of his sons off to war. And the king, Ahasuerus, is incensed by Pythias's request, yet he agrees to release the oldest son from the military. And so what he does is he has Pythias's son brought to him, to, to Ahasuerus, and he cuts him into two pieces. And he lays one half of his body on the left side of the road, the other half of his body on the right side of the road, and then he makes the entire army march down the road in between the body, just in case anyone else is considering staying behind. What a way to treat your friends. Right? King Ahasuerus is a completely unstable and unpredictable guy, even toward those who were closest to him. And if anyone knew that, it would have been Queen Esther, right? who's now asking the king to reconsider his own edict to wipe out all of the Jews and implicate his closest advisor in the process, while at the same time, after five years of marriage, reveals herself as a Jew, which she's kept hidden from her husband all this time, the king. And on top of all that, if the king's edict is not carried out according to Esther's request, then the 10,000 talents of silver that Haman has promised back in chapter 3 to deliver to the king's treasury after looting and killing the Jews is not going to be given to the king as well, right, if Esther has her way. And, of course, Esther's well aware of all that. So once again, she very tactfully, brilliantly, really, says to the king, If I've found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request, for we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. 
If we'd been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. So after quoting the royal edict concerning her people verbatim, she acknowledges the fact that the king is going to lose a lot of money if he agrees to not go forward with the plan to have them all killed. But as Ian Duguid puts it, there was no constitutional right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in the Persian Empire. So Esther is very careful to word her request in such a way as to acknowledge the king's interests even beyond her own. And so in a very skillful and yet enigmatic way, Esther baits the hook and then waits to see if the king will bite. And of course he does with a response that is eerily similar to King David's response to the prophet Nathan, who in much the same way baited the hook for David after his own sin with Bathsheba. So King Ahasuerus, in a furious rage, asks Esther, who is he? Where is, is he who has dared to do this? Yet unlike Nathan, Esther does not implicate the king in her answer. She deftly says, a foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. And in that one statement by Esther, all becomes clear. Haman realizes for the first time that his plan to kill the Jews includes the queen. And the king understands for the first time that the royal decree that he agreed to and authorized and signed and sent out to kill Haman's enemies was for the Jews, including his own wife and Mordecai, whom he just honored for saving the king's life. I mean, what a moment it must have been. And now, what does the king do? What could the king do? His wife has accused his closest advisor of plotting her own death and all her people, and yet the king knows good and well that he is as guilty as Haman in that plot. So what to do? How can he possibly punish Haman without implicating himself? And even if he finds a way to stop Haman, how can he stop the royal edict, which was irrevocable? It could not be reversed. Esther has just put the king in an extremely difficult position. Haman is terrified for his own life, and all the Jews, including Mordecai and Esther, are still under a death sentence. But keep in mind, this isn't just about the king changing his mind and it all stops. The edict was sent out to all the people in the known world at the time who were preparing to attack and kill the Jews. You can't just make a decision at the palace and that goes away. This entire situation has just gone off like a grenade in the room. That's why the king responds the way that he does. Let's read it, verse 7. The king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. So the king storms out of the room. Actually, because he has no idea how he's going to deal with this situation without implicating himself. And yet he's furious at the same time with Haman for putting him in this position. And he clearly wants to punish him. So he heads out into the palace garden to think through his options. When he returns, he finds that Haman has just solved the problem. Verse 8 to the end of the chapter. Let's read it. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance of the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. 
So in the span of just a few moments from the time that Esther reveals her request to the king, justice was served to Haman in an unlikely turn of events to say the least. The king needed a way to punish him and really to shut him up for good so that he could not implicate the king later in the plot to kill the Jews, which the king himself, of course, unwittingly approved. So Haman unwittingly provides the perfect excuse for the king to have him killed. Okay, in the Persian Empire, harem protocol dictated that no one but the king could ever be alone with one of the women from the harem. So first of all, Haman should have left the room according to law when the king left the room. But in his exasperation and fear, Haman stays to plead for his own life from Esther. And then he throws himself down on the couch that Esther was sitting on, bowing before her to beg for his life which was the last nail in his own coffin because the law also said that even in the company of others, no man could approach a woman of the king's harem within seven steps. And so for Haman to fall on the very couch that the queen was sitting on was unthinkable under Persian law. And of course, the moment the king saw it, he knew immediately that his problem had just been solved. And so he declares in a way that everyone within earshot might hear him. Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? Which was all that his servants needed to hear as they rush in and cover Haman's head and lead him to the very gallows that he had built for Mordecai. Interestingly, by the way, there are amplified translations of many of the Old Testament Bible stories. They're called Targums. They were shared by first century A.D. rabbis as the common language of the people was transitioning from Hebrew to Aramaic. And so the Hebrew scriptures would be read by the rabbi and then expounded on by the same rabbi in Aramaic. And so this is not biblical scripture, but it's still very interesting to read some of those Targums in relation to these stories. And I was reading several of them this week and one of the uh, Aramaic Targums of Esther says that, actually several of them said that the king actually gave Mordecai the privilege of personally killing Haman. And there's a really interesting exchange between them at the gallows, which I won't take the time to read today. But the point is, whoever led Haman to his death, this is poetic justice to say the least. Haman, who had built the gallows to kill a Jew who refused to bow before him, was now being killed on those same gallows for daring to bow before a Jew who just happened to be the queen. Right? And as we'll see in a moment, Mordecai ends up acquiring Haman's position and property. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. Right? In fact, not even Esther and Mordecai could have planned or predicted Haman's end to come the way that it did, which of course tells us more about the character of God than it does anyone else in the story. Because listen, God's justice for his people rests in his character, not in ours. Right? As mentioned last week, although we certainly have a part to play in God's plan for our lives, of course. But ultimately, he not only supplies all that is needed for his will to be accomplished in us, but the, the merit for all that he provides is found in him, not in us. In other words, God is just, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. Justice is a part of his character, and he exercises that justice on behalf of his people, not because we've earned it or could ever be good enough on our own to deserve it, but because of who he is, a just and loving and forgiving God. And yet, because he's just, justice must be done, right? Our sin had to be paid for, so he sent his perfect and sinless son, Jesus Christ, to die for us in our place, so that through the ultimate injustice, Justice was served. Okay, there isn't 
a human soul that ever has been or ever will be who could do what Jesus did because none of us is just or justified without him. And so this just end for Haman was not engineered by human effort and it wasn't granted because of human effort, a merit. It, it, no matter how hard or faithful uh, Haman and Esther were, or what they tried, uh, excuse me, Mordecai and Esther, it wasn't because of their effort or their merit. No, it was the prerogative of a just God. The, the king wasn't just, right? As we've seen, he was anything but just in his dealings with people throughout his reign, including the first queen and some of his closest friends. It had nothing to do with the Jews being just. The whole reason they were in exile was because of their own sin. And listen, it wasn't because Esther was just that justice was served on behalf of her people. Yeah, I think when we read this story, we tend to lift Esther up on a pedestal, and yet Although she admittedly had many wonderful qualities, certainly she did. Listen, Esther was far from perfect. For her to hide the fact that she was a Jew from everyone, including the king, for five years, with all of the royal feasts and dinners and official meetings and on and on and on that she was certainly a part of, there is no way that Esther was able to keep all of the dietary restrictions and requirements involved in, uh, with the prayer and worship imposed on the Jews under the Old Covenant ceremonial laws. I mean, not without revealing herself as a Jew. There's no way she kept all of the ceremonial law. She courted and married a pagan king, right? May not have been her choice, but she certainly didn't resist. She conveniently overlooks the king's own complicity in the plot to kill her and the rest of the Jews. She doesn't even bring it up. And even here, as Haman is accused of assaulting the queen, she does nothing to speak honestly about the fact that Haman was clearly not assaulting her. He was merely begging for his own life. Okay, I love the story, and I love Esther's character as much as anyone, but her character cannot be compared to God's character. Esther's character cannot be compared to God's because if we read this with honesty, Esther was obviously not a model Jew. She was far from perfect. So again, this, it wasn't because Esther was just that justice was served. Now, God's justice for his people rests in his character, not ours. And yet, we're supposed to model his character in ours. Okay? And I think we would all agree with that. So then why do we feel that we're sometimes justified in withholding forgiveness from someone who may not deserve it when a just God has forgiven us even though we didn't deserve it. Colossians 3, 12 and 13, the Apostle Paul said, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. It's a command. In other words, because God's character is to offer us forgiveness even though we don't deserve it. We are to also offer forgiveness to others who don't deserve it. God's justice was ultimately expressed through the cross. His justice was satisfied in the crucifixion of Christ, which means his justice was satisfied by us not getting what we deserve. And so because he forgave us, even though we didn't deserve it, he requires us to forgive others even though they don't deserve it. They, that may not seem just to us, but listen, justice originates in God's character, not ours. And it is satisfied in what Christ did, by the way, not in what we do. Again, Paul says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward 
as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Romans 3, 23 through 26. By the way, the word justified there in the Greek is the word diako. It means to be rendered innocent or righteous. So all who are justified, made righteous, are justified because he is just, because he is righteous. It all comes from him. We cannot be righteous without him, which means we have no right to withhold from others that which he did not withhold from us. But listen, so much of our behavior that we think is just, if we're being honest, I think is nothing more than pride, jealousy, and bitterness dressed up in self-righteousness. Listen, we cannot hold back forgiveness when we've been hurt or offended. We cannot carry those offenses around with us as if by our own merit we're somehow justified in withholding forgiveness. No, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is a club that every single one of us is a member of. No exceptions, no exemptions, no special cases. Every single one of us who is justified by faith in Christ is so justified only because of Christ, which means we're required to reflect his character by offering to others what he offers to us. Compassionate hearts toward others, even when they don't deserve it. We cannot withhold kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness. Okay? Listen, God will see to it that justice is done on your behalf. Our job is to bear with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Okay? We can win arguments all day long. But no matter how convincing or impenetrable our arguments may seem to be, if we do not have compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, and forgiveness, if we don't radiate the character of Christ in our own lives, our best arguments will fall on deaf ears. God is just and therefore our justifier, which means we cannot withhold from others what he did not withhold from us. Now, let's keep reading because the story is far from over. Haman has been justly dealt with Yet lest we forget, this royal edict for the annihilation of the Jews is still in effect and growing closer by the day. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had uh, had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai, And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, if it please the king and if I've found favor in his sight and if the thing seems right before the king, I am pleasing and I'm pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. 
For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. In other words, don't miss what he's saying. Ahasuerus is saying to Esther, I can't take back the royal edict that says the Jews are to be attacked and annihilated. I can't, I can't reverse it. Because an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. I can't do anything about that. However, what I can do is let you and Mordecai write another edict in my name in response to the first as you please. And that edict will carry the same weight and authority as the first. By the way, this second decree we're talking about here is far more than a last-ditch effort to save the Jews from certain death. This is, in fact, the fulfillment of the promise of God to deliver the Jews from their enemies, an ancient promise to his people, okay? As well as this plan by Mordecai and Esther is going, and it's going swimmingly. What's happening here is ultimately not a result of the faithfulness of Mordecai and Esther. It is a result of the faithfulness of God to keep his promises to his people, okay? God's faithfulness toward his people rests in his character, not ours. As mentioned earlier, Esther was not always faithful to God's covenant, but God is always faithful to his covenant. God always keeps his promises, even though we don't. Just as Paul reminded Timothy, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. 2 Timothy 2.13. Back in Genesis 12, God declared those who bless Abraham and his offspring will be blessed, while those who curse them will be cursed. You see, Haman wasn't just taking on the Jews. He was taking on their God. And the consequences that are about to follow for all those in Persia who will soon attack the Jews are a result of offending the king of kings far more than they are of offending the king of Persia. The, the punishing judgment that will be brought to bear on the heads of the enemies of the Jewish people which will ultimately bring about the Jews' deliverance is because of the faithfulness of God in keeping his promise to them. And this second decree, signed, sealed, and delivered by the king is the assurance that God is about to make good on that promise in epic fashion. And here's the beautiful truth about this character trait of God concerning us today. He never changes. He keeps his promises today just as he did then. And in keeping those promises, he's fixed his character. It's fixed on his character, not ours, that should be reflected in ours. Listen, if God's faithfulness depended on our faithfulness, we'd all be in a lot of trouble. But thankfully, that's not the case, right? Just as a decree from the king of Persia was irrevocable, Paul says the gifts and the calling of God are what? Irrevocable. Romans eleven twenty nine. God is always faithful to fulfill his promises. So if we are to reflect his character in ours, we too must be faithful. And so the question that we need to answer really here is faithful to what? What are we commanded to be faithful to? Of course, the answer is we're to be faithful to God and to each other which should be an obvious answer to all of us, except for the fact that the church apparently has been struggling with this from the first century all the way up to this century. And just listen to what Paul writes to the Corinthian church, which could just as easily be written to the church today. First Corinthians chapter 1, he says, Jesus Christ will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. 
For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? You understand what he's saying? Listen, I understand political passion. I do. But I wasn't baptized in the name of Donald Trump. I wasn't baptized in the name of Joe Biden or Barack Obama or any other human being that I see Christians pledging their allegiance to. Do we pray and support our leaders? Of course we do. God's word is clear on that. But I'm telling you, there's no president, no Congress, no Supreme Court. There's no government or king or country on this earth that can save us. There's but one God who can save us, and his name is Jesus Christ. And it is to him and him alone that we owe our ultimate allegiance and worship and devotion to. Furthermore, he is what unites us, not politics or governments or policies. In fact, the moment we put our faith and trust in anyone or anything but Christ, that is the moment the church begins to divide, just as Paul describes to the first century church in Corinth and to us. And yet we're called by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of us agree and that there be no divisions among us, but that we be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Well, listen, that kind of unity can never happen when our focus is on a political leader or a government or any other human being or human institution. No, that kind of unity that Paul commands us to have for one another can only be found when we are all, every single one of us, fixated on Christ alone. We're to be faithful to him and to one another. And yet it's easy, man, it's easy to find Christians ripping each other over, uh, to shreds over everything that divides us rather than lifting one another up over everything that unites us. I mean, if I had a dollar for every time I saw a professing believer on social media just picking a fight, has anyone's mind ever been changed reading a post on Facebook? I mean, come on, what are we doing? I'll tell you what we're doing. In fact, we're grieving the Holy Spirit. In addition to the message that we're sending to unbelievers who are watching the church implode on itself uh, over politics, we're grieving the Holy Spirit. And it, listen, please hear me. There are certainly moral issues that have been politicized, things like abortion, and the voice of the church should ring loud and clear in defense of those who cannot defend themselves. That is at the very core of the gospel. But true politics cannot be the focal point of the church. Not if anyone is ever going to take us or our message seriously because the Republican message is not our message. Sorry. The Democratic message is not our message. The libertarian message is not our message. Listen to me. The gospel of Jesus Christ is our message. It's just what Paul said to the Corinthian church. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I'm not telling you not to be involved in politics. I'm involved in politics. We'd better be. But that shouldn't be the focus of the church. And yet all too often it has become. I decided to know nothing among you, Paul says, 
because you're so divided. You're talking about all these different people that you follow. I've decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's all I'm going to talk to you about. Because that's what we're supposed to be focused on. It's the only thing that can unite us when we're called to be faithful to God and to each other in this because that is also the character of God. And so we can argue with one another about politics from now till Jesus comes back and we can make all of the best arguments. But if we don't radiate the character of Christ first and everything that we say and do, then I'm telling you, all of our arguments are worthless. Let's finish the story. Verse nine to the end of the chapter. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language and also to the Jews in their script and their language. That's an important point that we'll come back to. And he wrote in the name of the king Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters mounted by couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service bred from the royal stud. So these guys are not messing around. Saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives. To destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them. Children and women included. And to plunder their goods on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. On the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all peoples. And the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. So everybody's a Jew now. Hey, bro. Right? The royal secretaries are summoned. The same as they had been more than two months earlier by Haman. And Mordecai gives them orders to write a decree to the satraps, the governors, and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces. These are to the leaders of each province in its own script and to each people in its own language and also to the Jews in their script and their language. So just as Haman had done with the first decree, except that this decree includes the Jews with all of the leadership of the other nations, which was significant because Mordecai is in effect putting the Jewish people on equal footing with the rulers and nobles by addressing the letter to them along with the leaders in every other province. He makes it clear that the Jews may take any and every measure necessary in order to defend themselves against all coming attacks born out of the first decree. Load them up, boys. As well, like Haman's, uh, Haman's edict, Mordecai's was to be issued as law in every province and made known to all the people of every nationality so that all necessary preparations for that day could be made. In short, the Jews were given the exact same terms of force to defend themselves in this edict as that which was pronounced as an attack against them in the first edict. 
In other words, civil war has just been authorized in Persia by the king of Persia. It's breathtaking. It seems like it would be a dreadful outcome for this entire saga, and for God's enemies it would be, but not for the Jews. For God's people, this was a means of deliverance from death. In fact, this edict was a great act of love by God for his people. And you can see the effect that it had on them immediately, even before the fighting began. Starting at verse 15, it says, The city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor in every province and every city. Wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. They're celebrating the fact that they have miraculously been given a way of deliverance from an otherwise irrevocable death sentence. And everybody's on board, even the ones who weren't Jews were proclaiming themselves as Jews. Right now, listen, there's still responsibility on their part. They still had to respond to this new edict in order to benefit from it. But now there's a pathway to life made possible that didn't previously exist. And it foreshadows the deliverance that he provided for his people through Jesus Christ. His great act of love for us. You see, God's love for his people rests in his character, not ours. Obviously, Mordecai and Esther love God's people. I mean, just look at all that they've done to try and preserve them. Of course, when Esther approached the king about authorizing this second decree, verse 3 says that she fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot that he devised against the Jews. Then verse 6, she says, For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Clearly, Esther loved God's people, but it wasn't her love for them that saved them. It was God's love for them. 1 John 4, 8 tells us that God is love, which means whatever love there is in us for Him and for one another comes from Him. Right? Which also means that our love for others cannot be based on how much they do for us or how much they need us, or even how much they love us. No, our love for others is based on how much God loves us and how much he loves them. And So just think about that for a minute. If my love for other people is based on how they treat me, or how much they agree with me, or how well we happen to get along, then my love for others will always be conditional based on their performance or based on their character. But Jesus didn't say love your neighbor neighbor as he's able to earn your love. No, he said love your neighbor as yourself, Matthew 12, 31. He didn't say love the people who love you back. No, he said love your enemies, Matthew 5, 44. He didn't say love people as they deserve to be loved. No, he said love one another just as I've loved you. You also are to love one another, John 13, 34. And exactly how did he love us while we were still sinners? While we didn't deserve it, Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8. We didn't earn his love, and we do not deserve it, and yet he loved us to the point of giving up his own life for us. So why do we think that we can withhold from others what he did not withhold from us? So what if they don't deserve it? Neither do we. But he loves us just the same, which is exactly how we are to love others. I mean, we talk about theology and doctrine, And those are very important aspects of fulfilling the Great Commission. In fact, it's critical that we understand and relate sound biblical doctrine when we share the gospel. Without question, Paul told 
Titus to teach what accords with sound doctrine, Titus 2.1. He told Timothy that if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Peter said, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, 1 Peter 3.15. And of course, Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. I'm just telling you, there's a lot of doctrine and theology included in all that he commanded us. So yes, we need theology. Yes, we need apologetics. Yes, we need sound doctrine. We need solid arguments in defense of the gospel. Every believer should in fact strive to be as intellectually astute and as versed as possible in the teachings of scripture. But listen, if all of that learning and all of those arguments and all of our efforts to convince others are not preceded by the justice, the faithfulness, and the love of God in how we actually live our lives, if we do not radiate the character of Christ in our actions, well, then our words will ring hollow and mean very little to those who even bother to listen. Okay, because look, God is just, God is faithful. God is love. And so I'm asking you, when others encounter us, when others encounter you, do they see justice? Do they see faithfulness? Do they see love in us before we even open our mouths? Or is it all just talk? Clever arguments without any validation or proof in how we actually conduct ourselves? Because all too often I see Christians trying to win arguments. Yet by the tone of their approach and the tenor of their purpose in making those arguments to begin with, I wonder how often are they actually winning people's hearts. I'll just tell you, I would much rather always show the justice, faithfulness, and love of Christ than to always win every argument. Esther wasn't always right. She was far from perfect. But she radiated the character of Christ in her life. His justice and his faithfulness and his love was evident in her life. You know, that's what drew other people to her. And that's exactly what will draw others to us, to the church and to Christ. Not winning arguments. Winning hearts as we radiate the character of Christ in our own lives. Let's pray.